Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 94. Episode 94, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Another week, Ryan. It seems like we're just trucking along this year. I know it, man. I know it. We're in February already, and uh, I guess February's a short month, so halfway through February, as it's February February 11th. And, you know, we talked about the fishing trip, Josh, and I was I got with the folks at Baffin Bay Rod and Gun the other day, and we have our first day officially set, which is March 15th and 16th. So how it works is we'll go down there on the 15th, um, stay the night, and get up and go fishing on the 16th, and then... You know, you can head back or, or do whatever you want to do. So this week, this week, you'll be getting an email from myself or Josh or Nate um, announcing if you are the winner for the trip in March. That is the 15th and 16th. And I can go ahead and announce those other dates, uh, April 19th and 20th, May 24th and 25th, and June 28th and 29th. Now, Josh and I, uh, my wife is due in April, and Josh has his wife due in June, so we both may not be on... Um, on the April and June ones, but um, one or one of us will be there for sure in April or June. But anyways, so that's what we got. So again, that's March 15th and 16th, April 19th and 20th, uh, May 24th and 25th, and June 28th and 29th. And it's the same deal across the board. You go in on Friday night, stay the night, and you get in up on Saturday morning, and you go fishing from there. So Josh, I'm I'm excited, man. I'm ready to get down there and uh, rip a little lip. Yeah, I, I went online and just uh, check check some of the stuff out. You know, they, they I think they just built this facility where they're at. I, I I don't know if maybe they were hit with a flood in 2016 and just uh, moved locations then, but it's showing that the facility is pretty new. So I'm I'm excited to stay there and hang out and super excited to go fishing, man. I, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yep, so be sure to check them out at BaffinBayRodAndGun.com. Baffin Bay Rod and Gun is the official Yeti Lodge in Texas. And, of course, Yeti, if you want to sponsor the official Texas Oil and Gas podcast in the state of Texas, then, you know, there's, there's no reason that Yeti shouldn't be writing checks, more checks, I think. Um, you know, it, it just makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. I mean, the ROI would be through the roof, so. Through the roof. Yeah. Could you imagine all the Yeti coolers they would yeah. be selling? And hey, listen, that, that cooler business is complicated. There's folks out there with, I was at a store the other day, I saw some kind of new cooler. I don't even know who it was or it was a new brand. So Yeti, you need to get on that and uh, about two, three million dollars will get you started. Well, Ryan, we have a couple of guests that are coming on later, but we had some questions that came in this week. Uh, we haven't really gotten a lot of questions over the past two or three months, but we had two really good questions that came in over the weekend uh late late last week and over the weekend and uh, we have the privilege of nate actually joining us on the show to uh to read these questions uh, for us to answer hi this is the worst podcast producer in the world formerly known as Nate, with your questions, comments, and conundrums. Will writes, I have heard you guys talk about the logistics problems of getting crude out of the Permian, and I have a question I have not heard addressed yet anywhere. Some say Q4 2019 the bottleneck will be less, 
But does that take into account the massive amount of gathering systems that have not yet been built because of the bottleneck? In other words, companies are still drilling. They are making the best deals they can to move their new product, but all the lines are full. So new systems will need to be built to accommodate this new output. It would seem the large capital pipeline projects meant to alleviate the bottleneck only satisfy the current capacity problem. What about all the additional barrels? Were those accounted for? Will we see the bottleneck problem pushed into the well fields where new gathering systems are desperately needed? Great question from Will Darkwing Duck. Uh, this is something that we've talked a little bit about uh, for the last couple of weeks. We've been having some discussions, and there was a, a video that I that I found, and the the question is really about the bottleneck that's going to come after this bottleneck. Uh, what's going to be the next bottleneck? And it looks like it's going to be completions, well completions. Uh, so what do you think about the question, Ryan? I, I mean, do you foresee there being uh, a, a big shortage in gathering systems? Do we see a uptick in those once the pipelines are constructed? Uh, third quarter 2019? Well, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the, 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 I think the, the core is, and as we talked about on the show before, Josh, you know, um, late this year there's going to be more pipeline capacity and and you and, and according to the numbers i think we looked at it was like what two million spare uh, barrels a day mm-hmm. or something like that capacity now anytime you deal with data you gotta think about it like this where's the data coming from and so in this case the data that that they're pulling unless they're getting private company data which probably is not the case um they're getting publicly public public company information and so there's really two main ways you would do that you go to pipeline companies that are publicly traded and you would see okay they're building these pipelines and it's going to have this capacity and you put that on your little spreadsheet or notepad or whatever and then you go to operators and you'd say operators are going to pump this much oil and they have agreements with these other pipeline companies that we didn't catch um and they're going to put out this you know pipelines are going to take away this much crude what what's so that doesn't deal with the private stuff and some of the stuff that, that uh, Darkwing here is getting at. And the, so how would you measure the amount of private, non-publicly traded companies, um, how much pipelines they're going to be building? And so you, you could find that from a publicly traded producer, right? So Pioneer, in theory, could say that they partnered with Josh Shelton Pipeline to build X amount of um, you know, uh, capacity pipelines. So you could find it there. Um, or Josh Shelton Pipeline could give you the information on their website, stuff like that. But the, the further you go down that rabbit hole, the harder it is. So when we're talking about this, you know, these two million spare capacity barrels, it's probably going to be more of the stuff like the Epic Pipelines and the, the Kinder Morgan job we talked about the other day, these big, large, massive capital projects that are going on. Um, as for, you know, a two-mile gathering line um, here, here in, you know, Pecos or, or somewhere like that, that's probably not being incorporated into these overall larger numbers. And so you might have the takeaway capacity from a large capital project, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have the gathering capacity to collect the, um, the oil from all these individual wells and take it to the larger mainline um, you know, uh, infrastructure, if you will. So I, and I think that's going to be an issue that's going to be dictated by a couple things. One, um, the drilling companies and the pipeline companies are going to have agreements in place that say that you have to, um, you know, we're, we're going to drill this many whales and we need, we need you to build these, this much pipeline to take away these whales, you know, um, over the next six months, two years, whatever the case would be. So you're going to have that. The other thing is, is it's going to also depend on 
how much the drilling drops off through the first half of this year and then how much, if at all, it picks up in the second half this year. And so we saw this happen, this, this bottleneck that's being talked about, is a result of the downturn. As a result of the downturn, remember we talked about that, that, that you know the, the drilling was really high, pipelines were being built, the drilling fell off, but the pipelines kept being built. And that's gathering lines, that's main lines, that's all the, all the different pipeline infrastructure that you, you'd look at. And then the pipelines slacked off, and the next thing you know, the drilling picks up, and the pipeline has a lag. Um, and so as long as the drilling would stay constant on some level for a long period of time, the pipelines can basically catch up. They can't ever catch up because once you drill a well, you need another line to take away the product, right? So that you can never fully catch up uh, unless you're building lines where they're going to drill wells <laughs> in advance. So that would be my answer is that, yeah, you, you are going to see kind of um, – you know this, this game where the drilling program could ramp back up, and you have some small gathering. But the bigger thing is, is that it, it takes not it doesn't take very much time to build a gathering line. You know, you can build a gathering line um, or multiple gatherings, excuse me, a gathering system, in a relatively short amount of time if you want to. The big long lines, like a like an epic pipeline, those can take you know two years sometimes, depending on permits and you know, eminent domain issues and all these other things. So getting away the large excess capacity from an epic pipeline or something like that is really important. The gathering stuff is important, but it's just, it's just a lot easier to do. The, um, the way those projects are designed, the lack of um, governmental oversight allows them to be done quicker. So I think the focus here is going to be, yes, he is correct. You're going to see an excess of 2 million barrels, but the gathering stuff, it can catch up a lot quicker because there's just not as many hoops to jump through um, unless you're dealing with some, um, you know, maybe you're in the BLM land or something like that. But if you're just out and privately on land, the, the, the hoops to jump through to get a gathering system done just aren't as tough. That's good stuff, Ryan. Uh, and I wonder, you know, I wonder what kind of uptick we're going to see uh, in the gathering systems, you know, maybe maybe late 2019, 2020. Uh, there was something that said there was going to be 7,000 completed wells by mid-2020. This is what this article said, so it may, may not be accurate. I think we are at 3,500 right now, so they they are expecting uh, there to be, you know, a lot of a lot of works in surrounding that that particular phenomena when there's so many that haven't been fracked. We have a, uh, another question though, Ron, from Rob George. This is an attorney, and the question was quite long, Ron. So I appreciate Nate for reading that question for us. Rob writes, "Gentlemen, 92 is a great episode." Well, thanks, Rob. I particularly enjoyed your eminent domain conversation. You raised many of the difficult policy questions, and I wanted to respond to one or two. So you know my background, a little bio. I'm an attorney who, in the recent past, represented landowners, farmers, and ranchers, and hope to do so again in the future. I left that practice and moved to a city in Texas for some opportunities for my kiddos. I've only ever represented the landowner side of the eminent domain issue, so my opinions probably run a little on that side of the spectrum. But here are my thoughts anyway. Eminent domain is a necessary right for governmental units who are tasked with serving the public good and accountable thereto. From there, a well-intended but inaccurate legal fallacy has been established. The concept of private companies, in the non-governmental sense, not the privately held versus publicly traded sense, stepping into the shoes of the governmental unit and also working for the public good. 
Private companies are not directly answerable to the public like the government is. Instead, private companies answer to their owners slash shareholders slash investors. Even so, our legislature has imbued private pipeline companies with the exceptionally powerful right to take private property if certain circumstances are met. Thus, eminent domain for private companies butts painfully up against private citizens' rights to own property. To my mind, individual freedom should win, and private companies should have to negotiate a deal with the landowner that is acceptable to the landowner. Everyone has a price, or so it's said, and the company should have to negotiate that deal without also holding the hammer of eminent domain. In other words, the parties should sit at the table with as equal bargaining power as possible. As it now stands, the landowner is on the stern of the Titanic reaching toward the pipeline company holding a life preserver on the bow. It's worth noting that pipelines don't have to be built in a straight line. Indeed, pipeline companies routinely have to accommodate environmentally sensitive areas, and proposed pipeline maps regularly offer several alternative pathways. To my mind, then, and recognizing my bias, if a pipeline company cannot offer a landowner a price the target landowner is willing to accept, the pipeline company can negotiate with the landowner's neighbors. The pipeline company will eventually offer a price that a landowner will accept. That's a free-er market than we have now. Whatever the time to break even is for a pipeline, adding a little extra time to that timeline is negligible considering the ROI of the pipeline over its life. So asking pipeline companies to negotiate without the power of eminent domain will not significantly disrupt the economics of the pipeline. This issue is one of the rare instances where I disagree with Texas's general policy of the dominant mineral estate, although that doctrine isn't directly applicable to the pipeline issue. Yes, getting hydrocarbons where they are needed, as quickly and efficiently as possible, is to the common benefit of our fellow Texans. But that has to be balanced with the rights of our fellow Texans to own, sell, and burden their own property. Thank you for taking the time to read this super long comment. You're welcome. And keep up the great work on the podcast. We will. Or at least, Josh and Ryan will. Uh, so we need to break this down into its parts. So there's lots of different aspects of it. Um, I think one of the first parts is, you know, he, he talks about eminent domain, and he says that he tends to side with the uh, the private ownership aspect uh, rather than the, the private companies. Uh, so that was something that me and you talked a little bit about, Ryan, but he raises some questions, and he talks about the fact that the government having eminent domain makes sense, but when we extend that right to these private companies, that it creates issues that conflict with private ownership. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think, I think first off, um, it kind of misses the issue there, because if you're saying that, um, that the government can have eminent domain issues, then the government is extending that right to private companies. So if you're saying if you're saying that you're okay fundamentally with the government having the issue, but you're not okay with private companies having it, I would say, well, I understand the distinction that's being made there, but I would push back and say, well, you've already conceded that the government is wise enough to understand when eminent domain should be in place. Why then can they not simply rule upon it for a private business? And so you'd look at it like this, you'd say, does the government always use eminent domain in a proper capacity? And the answer is no. We could look at things where, you know, is every road that's built, is it a road that needs to be built? Every road that's widened, a road that needs to be widened? And, and the answer is we don't know. We just don't simply know those answers because the amount of 
information that you'd have to have. And, you know, anyways, so we don't know that. But if you are going to say, well, I'm okay with the government having the right to use it, that's this for aside on whether they're good at a good steward of that right. Let's just say you're okay with that. Then them extending that right to private business, I don't really see the distinction there because ultimately government would be the one ruling on whether or not you can enforce your eminent domain in particular cases. You see, does mm-hmm. that make sense? Um, so I, I, that's what I'd say there. Now, um, he goes on to talk about, um, you know, the the pipelines and and so here's here's this kind of the analogy I get. So the image domain for me is and I'm not being hard on uh, on uh, uh, Rob here. I'm just I'm just kind of parsing it out. It's a very tough issue, very complicated issue for me, because if you said I live in Hood County, Texas, and so I was telling you this the other day, Josh. So if a pipeline company wanted to come across my property, and I have a just a you know less than an acre track here in the neighborhood I live in, so it's, you know small track, but if they if I said no, and then moving to the east, they try to go east. And they went all the way to wherever the, my, if you went due east hits, the eastern seaboard, I guess. And every one of those people said no. Okay, and then they went all the way to the west. And I guess it would probably be the Mexican border. I don't think I'd go to the, to the Pacific Ocean. So the, the Mexican border, every one of them people said no. What then is the company to do? And you'd say, well, in a free market society, they would just build a refinery somewhere else. Uh, maybe in um, San Diego or Los Angeles or New York. Well, the issue with that is, is that they can't. We know that the government regulation on building refineries and stuff is very cumbersome process. So that's where the issue also becomes a burden. So because you you can't say well, you can't you can't say well they, in a true free market society the market would dictate whether well, the landowners don't want it coming through here. So therefore you figure out a different way to do it. Well, and what we're in now there is not a it's not a true free market, and so you can't just go put up a refinery wherever you want to to refine this product. Um, and so that's that's the issue is that you go, well, what you're talking about is very hypothetical and it couldn't work. The other thing I think that's more realistic is you, you take the Epic Pipeline and let's say that they're buying right away in the Epic Pipeline and they've got 85% of the right away bulk. And then a group of landowners, and, and they, you know, 85%. So let's say um, they've got, you know, a lot, and there's a gap. So they've built, they split that 85, let's say 80%. They split that 80% into two 40s. So for, they start at the, at, the, at the starting point, 40% go due south, and then from the end point, 40% due north. So you've got that 20% right there in the middle. Well, what do you do if that 20% figures out that strategically they can now hold out because they bought all this other right away? What then do you do? Because they could hold out forever, theoretically. Um, or Epic Pipeline, who has commitments. They have to, these contracts are based on commitments. As we talked about, the Epic Pipelines specifically, um, you know, one of the things is that they're going to transition the pipe from natural gas to oil um, because of some of their, contra- their contractual obligations allow them. So when you go to build a pipeline of, of that magnitude, you're saying that you're going to be in service by this date. Well, now the landowners can hold you up indefinitely. And the, because the landowners know, if the landowners savvy, they, they know, hey, we can hold up the pipeline company. Well, then Epic Pipeline could not meet their, their deadline which means now they're in default of their contract. And so you say, well, that's a business risk that they were willing to take. And, 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 and you know, okay, maybe so. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't like any of the answers is my, is my long-winded way of saying all this, Josh, because we're not in a free market society. But all, and, and if we were, how would we do things might be different. We don't know. You know. We don't know what it would look like if you could build refineries and plants and stuff like that wherever you wanted to. We just don't know what that looks like. But we can't, so we can't even 
reasonably understand how that would work. And so when you get to this issue, I think that there is a, it would be, from my standpoint, it would be a little bit, I don't want to say, um, I don't know what the right word is here. It'd be a little bit presumptuous to assume that landowners couldn't game the system and prevent pipelines from being built. If that happened enough, what ultimately would happen is U.S. oil and gas production would not become competitive because they they just quit build. They couldn't. They could not build it. Also, the final thing I'd say is you have to deal with this issue where um, Rob here. Let's just pick. Let's just use Rob as an example. Let's say Rob has ten thousand acres out in the Permian. And he wants to sell those minerals. He has no surface. He just has the mineral rights. And he wants to sell those minerals. And so a, a producer wants to drill for those minerals. And so they, they, they enter a lease agreement. But then they go, you know what? Because we can't acquire eminent domain, and there's no reasonable expectation that we can actually get this oil to market, we're not going to build the pipeline that we want to build. Um, and that's, a, again, if you don't have this on any, any level, those are things that you could see. And so I'm definitely not saying I got the... I got the solution here, Josh. I see a lot of problems, and I, I'm very sympathetic to the fact that, on the flip side, a company like Epic could come through and just start taking your property left and right with no standard as to which they're being held to to say that they have the right to take your property. So it's a very, very difficult issue, um, one that I don't have the answer for. I think, and one of the things I'm curious, maybe when we talk, we have a, some lawyers coming on in a few weeks. I, I'm wondering, Josh, I've thought about this a little bit. I wonder if in eminent domain cases, if you could require the company to directional drill or bore under your property. And so you could say, well, you know what, we're not going to sell them a right away across our property. But listen, we can allow them to directionally drill, you know, a thousand feet or whatever it is beneath our surface. And that way, effectively, they are on our property. But realistically, um, they're not really doing any damage to the property. So they, so, so that might be, you know, it would cost more for the oil and gas company um, to exercise the right to, to drill because it costs more to drill. Um, the landowner, he's not losing the use of his land unless he wanted to drill for like a water well or, you know, oil and gas well. But, but those, but that, Josh, is a lot, that's, I don't know. That, that to me, a, a solution like that might be something, a middle ground that people could look at. But I don't know, man. What do you think? Because to me, it's just, there's just problems no matter how you turn this this thing around. And and finally, Rob, thank you for the question. I, I appreciate it. He's very nuanced and he, he spells it out. So I love what he's asking here. I'm just trying to parse it myself. Yeah. Well, you know, he he makes uh, you know a couple of points about uh, whatever time to break even is for a pipeline. Adding a little extra time to that timeline is negligible considering the ROI of the pipeline over its life. So he makes this point to say that it may take longer to negotiate, but in the grand scheme of things it's not going to be a huge impact. But I think one of the points you made uh, a little earlier was if the U.S. becomes less competitive in the oil and gas market because of the lack of eminent domain capabilities for these private companies, then other nations will be able to capitalize on this. Now, it's something that uh, not a lot of people are as familiar with, but most, most nations, oil and gas and government, are inseparable. Uh, so here we actually have private companies with the capability of doing this. If you go, I think if you go look at you know, Russia and some of these some of these areas, it, a lot of these companies are government-backed, government-run companies. I believe is that right, Ryan? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It depends on how they they parse it out, but yeah, they are definitely. They're, State they're not business. as private owned as what you find in the states. Right, they're national. They're, they're national. Yeah. So there, it's a slightly different situation there because the government is exercising eminent domain just as much as 
we are over here, but they're doing it in the name of big government. Uh, so I think one of the one of the parsing that he made of the government and the private companies, like you pointed out, Ryan, the government can just delegate this down to the private companies as an extension of the government's oversight uh, of eminent domain. So I think that was a good point. But also, we don't want to go in the direction where oil and gas can only be successful if carried out by the government. We don't want to go that direction either. Right. Uh, because then what you're saying is we need to relegate oil and gas drilling to the government itself because public companies shouldn't have this right to exercise eminent domain. And that becomes a slippery slope because if the government can't exercise it, public companies can't, public companies get pushed out of the workplace because they can't be competitive or they go elsewhere, then the government ends up having an opportunity to step in the gap to exercise eminent domain. And I just think you could go in a wrong direction there. And I'm not saying we would go. I'm just looking at different outcomes, different um, tracks that, that you know we may end up getting on if this weren't uh, a capability of public companies. So, like you said, it's a lot of a lot of questions that lead to conundrums that I really uh, just don't see the way out of. And I, I do think that there are some ways that we could maybe meet in the middle. Like I mentioned, having a checklist for companies. And from what I what I can tell, I've been asking questions with water companies, having the capability of becoming a common carrier. And it seems to be a pretty extensive list of things you have to do uh, to be considered a common carrier. So I know it's a possibility that some of these bigger public companies could, uh, could you know, use eminent domain in a way that would be uh, in bad faith. But uh, it, it's difficult to get that, uh, that accreditation, um, being able to right. be one of those companies. So I, I think maybe some more guidelines to make sure that they went through a certain amount of things to prove that they've acted in good faith. Uh, but then there's also issues on that, like we talked about in the past. So, Right. And, and a couple of things here, just to wrap this up, Josh, because you made a lot of good points there. Um, first off, I don't think we, either one of us are saying that we have the answer. I think what we're saying is it's hard to take a hard line stance on this either way because the way the current system is, it lends itself to worse ideas, worse scenarios. So if you could just build a refinery wherever you wanted to, in a true free market society, you could build a refinery wherever you want to. You'd go, you'd pay the landowner or lease the land or whatever. You could build one in San Diego or in uh, Atlanta, Georgia or wherever. Um, that would be a little bit different discussion, but you can't do that. In a true free market society, you could you know, maybe cross the border and ship it down to Mexico and put in... Um, and um, you know, have a refinery right there. So there's a lot of solutions that if we were in a truer free market um, situation, I think that we that I would look at. And say, okay, but I, I'm I'm trying to look at it as we sit here today. And the problem I see is is that if you give it, if like you say, if you give too much power to the to the to the private companies, then all of a sudden they're going to just take land. But let me say a couple things here, and um, we might get a landman on here to parse all the differences out of this. But you know, if you own if you own minerals right now, um, then essentially, and you don't own the surface, essentially they will find a way if the price is high enough to 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 drill for that. And so you could look at that and say, well, there is a way that companies are finding a way around this. Now I don't know the laws in different states, but I I, I know and I, I believe, and again, if a landman's listening, email us or shoot shoot a note. I believe that as it stands, some states say, well, if we get so many people in this pooling. So we have the Sheltons, we have the Rays, 
we have the Douglases, we have the Smiths, and they've all agreed to sell us their, or lease us their minerals. Um, but the Joneses over here won't. I believe in some states that you can then go and effectively um, use a, a, something similar to, uh, akin to eminent domain to then extract the minerals. Um, furthermore, I'd say is that if you have minerals and you don't have some right of eminent domain, then mineral ownership in and of itself becomes less valuable because you could have the minerals, but the guy on the surface could say, "Yep, you're never, you're never. I own more surf. I own a million surface acres. You own ten thousand mineral acres inside my million. Therefore, you can never drill these these um, these minerals." And so you, you get into these things where it's really hard to parse it out and to go, "How do you do this?" And ultimately, I would say this is that if you want it to be truly free market and there is no eminent domain, um, you're going to see a lot higher gas prices and the it's, it's just going to function a lot differently so um, I appreciate Rob I talked to him a little bit offline here he seemed like a really really good guy so thank you for the question Rob and um, we have what in two weeks Josh three weeks we have some mm. folks coming on to kind of um, we have like a moderated debate we're going to do on this issue so I'm excited about that and maybe we can get some of these philosophical type questions and some legal questions answered about yeah, this. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Hopefully we can uh, make a little progress. Progress, Like I said, uh, Texas may be calling us to uh, help legislate eminent domain before this is over with. Yeah, if Governor Abbott needs us to come mm-hmm. down and uh, to talk to him. But, you know, I, I, let's just wrap up this for my two cents, Josh. And really this is kind of my thing is that it's really not cut and dry. I, I mean, you can make it cut and dry, and you can make it cut and dry, but I think when you look at all of the complexities and we try to be intellectually honest with the issue we ultimately come back and say man this is really tough and i I would be leery of any long-standing legislation so and again i don't trust government but let's say theoretically you had a law that you said well we're gonna give this law you know four years and then we're gonna review it then or something not a permanent law in the books maybe something like that to, to let people try it out um, that coincided with uh, you know an election schedule, <laughs> something like that. So uh, put some put some pressure on the politicians. I do, I really don't know though because it, to me it seems very complex, and maybe I'm just dumb enough not to understand it. That is always a possibility. So well, hopefully, hopefully that's not the case for us. Yeah, I know. So you got real quiet on yeah, that. Well, I was thinking real about quiet. roasting you a little bit. Amen in it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I figure I might be falling in with you. So. <laughs> and hey, that reminds us. So Rob sent in um, sent in his question um, on the website. So be sure to go leave a question on the website. We'll send his in through the the contact page. Questions or comments, you know, let us know. And um, or you can leave us on the text message or the phone line three one eight five nine 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 one nine two. Final thing, Josh, did you notice how deep Nate's voice sounded when we talked to him on the phone? He's got that really high squeaky voice do you think he modified that for the show or what's going on yeah, there? you know you watch those movies where they uh, scary movies where they use that voice alterer uh to make them sound <laughs> that's he what did it, it is yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> poor nate, poor uh, nate. Yeah. we're picking nate does have them natural deep pipes and i'll give a plug here nate has a show his own podcast called air war audiobooks air war audiobooks and so if you want to go hear those rich deep pipes that Nate has, you can go check him out at Air War Audiobook. So there it is, Nature, one plug for the year. <laughs> so enjoy it. 
Well, today we have a special guest, uh, JT. He's from Acadiana Oilfield Instruments. He's with us today to talk about data acquisition and why that is important and how the industry uh, needs to have some improvements. JT, glad to have you on the show today, bud. How's it going? I'm doing good. Thank you, guys. You're doing well today, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. You know, uh, you want to talk about data acquisition, JT. It's funny. We were just talking about this as it pertains to pipeline. We had a question about um, pipeline spare capacity and things like that. And I was and I was referencing the fact that those numbers, anytime you're talking about data, it's always about, you know, how good is the data, where can you get the data from, and obviously what you're doing is not about spare pipeline capacity, but just walk us through generally the, the, the thought process of data acquisition, verifying data, you know, because those are all kind of loose terms, but, you know, how does all that play into what you guys do, and maybe where are some things in the industry, because Sometimes it feels like we report, 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 but then you go, hey, what do we do about this? And people go, well, we don't have the data for that. So kind of, kind of take it from that as well. Well, um, for data acquisition, it's all about accuracy, like you said. Um, and, and a lot of times, some of the operations that are done now um, are done by hand. They're, they go get a pressure reading off a gauge that, you know, they're within 100 pounds, but maybe they're not. Uh, 100% accurate. You know, they they get a strap and maybe they can't see where the line is on their on their strap sticks, or uh, they're getting a barrel counter, but maybe their barrel counter is is a little bit off. Um, and it's very important, especially on some of the production side and uh, some of the well testing and flowback side, to make sure that your information is 100% correct. Um, we were brought with an issue of uh, flowback, is, is how we got started on some of the data acquisition and monitoring systems because um, they were having issues with inaccuracy and um, flowback getting blamed for a lot of issues that they claimed were not really their, their problems. Um, and they also, from the engineering side in the office, the engineers wanted more accurate data um, at, at the correct times. Um, field operations sometimes don't get reports out when they're supposed to and things of that nature. So if you bring technology into it, you don't miss reports. Um, and we even can put in things like live streams. So engineers can see real time data and also trend lines and things of that nature, as opposed to just reports on a screen. And it makes it much more easy for engineers to know what's going on in their perspective fields. So when you look at this, um, are you guys using wireless technology um, to get the data back to a central hub? Um, you know, it, it seems like when you look at data acquisition, you know, as you mentioned, you kind of had the pencil paper method, and then you kind of had um, maybe the old roll engage method, and then you kind of go into more and more advanced stuff. It seems now that you're seeing stuff out there where you could almost um, be sitting at your home office, if you will, and the data be transported back to you. Um, how are you guys seeing that shape up? Because the industry is wanting to be more tech savvy, but obviously there's still maybe a little pushback on that. So um, how are we progressing with not just acquiring the data, but getting the data from the field to the to the office, if you will? So some of our systems um, have, they're connected through um, the same way your, your iPhone or your computers are connected through the internet through wireless SIM cards. Um, now our transducers and transponders all are wireless and they Trans back to a central hub on location, which then pulls all of your data and actually transmits it to the office so they can see it in real time. Um, and the reason this is so nice is because it allows your operators that are on location 
to actually work on equipment. Um, they're not so worried about trying to get their numbers every hour. They're not they, because they know that the system is going to pull all of the information that is required so they have time to work on things, which obviously pulls into safety issues um, from valves that they might miss that are open or closed that need to be the opposite. Um, and you also have issues from you have issues with dumps or uh, pop-offs going off and you're no longer recording accurate data sometimes for two or three hours and that could lead to a lot of problems like washed out chokes which could cause your well to die um, and it's it's very important to, to make sure you know what's going on at all times and that's what these data acquisition systems allow your operators to do. What are you seeing as far as needs that maybe weren't realized? So if you're sitting there saying, well, you know, six months ago or two years ago, companies were looking for this, but now that they're getting more accurate data, they're going, you know what, we're seeing trends here and maybe we'll, we want to capture new data, we want to compare data models. Um, are you seeing a shift in maybe saying, well, we have these 10 things that we're using for baseline, but now we want to know something else? So yes, um, they're wanting more um, accurate reporting um, as opposed to before only you could get numbers for your, once again, your flow back side. And I keep going back to that as it's our main um, ideal for pushing this software and this hardware. Um, uh, they're, they're wanting reports more often um, and they're wanting to see, as say, instead of every hour knowing what their pressures are, they want to know um, every, you know, 60 seconds, every five minutes, every half hour, which allows them to see things with issues within the well. So it keeps wells from dying at times because they know when issues arise right then um, with alarms and those types of things. You could see pressure jumps or fluid jumps, um, things of that nature, or fluid dying off, pressure dying off. Um, and it's stuff that the system will not miss. So that's that's kind of what the need is there. Um, now, that acquisition has been used on the drilling side and, you know, as you said, the pipelines and even some production facilities for a while now. But the uh, flowback side is a market that nobody really chased. Nobody really understood that there's such a need for it there because they always thought the old system was, you know, the way of doing things. And I think it speaks for itself even with some of the new drilling technologies that have come out. Um, with just within the last few years with some of these cyber rigs and things of that nature, the technology allows wells to be drilled and completed and puts productions faster, um, which obviously brings a quicker return to your investors. And that's and then at the end of the day, that's that's what's important. Well, JT, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, the, the company you're with, and uh, the software and stuff that y'all have built to to improve the data acquisition in the industry. Well, um, my name's JT, obviously. I think the listeners know that by now. Um, but I am a younger kid in the industry who saw some needs um, from the technology aspect and thought, you know, there's there's issues here. Let's fix them. Um, I've known the guys with Acadiana Oilfield Instruments um, for at least a decade. Um, my dad worked with them back when I was a kid, and um, they're always helpful and uh, they were all about let's get some of this technology out there and see what it, what it can do. Um, and then we had this idea for the flowback systems, and um, it was a portable option. It's a wireless option. It's a low-cost option, and it really fixes an issue nobody really knew was there. Um, and it's changing the way flowback is done. It's increasing safety. It's uh, increasing bottom-line numbers, and 
it's really it's really changing the face of it awesome well jt if somebody wanted to find you uh where would be the best place to go as always um linkedin is a good place to find me you can find me on there jt self um and always you can give me a call at 405-535-1548 um and i've always got my phone on me and i'm always willing to take inquiries so um i can be contacted anytime awesome well jt thank you so much for coming on the show today we really appreciate it um and um you know maybe have you on here in six eight months or you know a year when the data acquisition story breaks it's funny following this stuff there's always different angles and so it's always um good to kind of get an update on what operators are looking for out there so thank you again for coming on thank you guys for having me and hope you guys have a good day all right well thanks again to jt for for coming on the show today really appreciate having some uh, some info um things that i've wasn't you know that good information there so uh, i'm glad he was able to make it on the show today ryan we are at the texas roundup where we cover news with mergers acquisitions um, things that are going on in the industry purchases uh so one was this one's actually a little old ryan we were gonna do it uh about a week or two ago and the show just uh kind of went over so uh, i ended up pulling it over here and bringing it to this week just so uh, make sure that people were aware of it. Magellan Midstream extends open season on Cushing to Houston crude oil pipeline. So um, pretty pretty large pipeline, open season there. So good news. They are uh, getting uh, getting closer to completion. So um, I'm, I'm excited about uh, them trying to get some commitments there uh, so that they can get you know, get it started. And last one, Ryan, there's only two this week that I have. Noble Energy buys stakes in two Permian Basin of Corpus Christi pipelines. So Noble Energy is, uh, has bought some stakes in these two uh, pipelines. So this is going to be the year of the pipeline, I think, Ryan. And so there's, there's moves happening and uh, something to keep, keep an eye on. Maybe some opportunities coming up available uh, with both of these pipelines. Yeah, and it, it's the it's the year is it the year of the pig this year? So the year of the pig, and obviously when you build a pipeline, you got to pig it. So that <laughs> little bad bad pipeline joke, that's terrible. Okay, not even. Funny. <laughs> All right, a couple things, Josh. First, <laughs> first off, um, let me just kind of say this because this has come up recently a couple times. We have had some guests who have wanted to come on, and the lawyers got involved. Like, hey, we need editorial rights and stuff so just for the listeners we always are looking for guests we want you to come on but just so you know guys we understand that the blood-sucking lawyers want to rule your lives but we can't give out editorial control so it's come up a couple times so just want to just kind of get that out there um and i'm not i i, under, I fully understand if the blood-sucking attorney is doing it to you so i'm sympathetic with you but we just something we can't give up here um for a lot of reasons but Mainly, we're just not going to. Um, the other thing is, we're thinking about doing a shrimp bowl, a couple shrimp bowls. And we're talking about doing one in Midland, one in Houston, and maybe one in Dallas. So if you're interested in that, we need to hear from you. 318-599-9192. You can reach out to the website. We're really thinking about doing um, you know, two to three this year. Um, again, one in each of those cities. And it would be a limited seating thing. And so we would just come and, you know come out there and hang out for an evening, maybe have some music or some cold beer or, or something as a bull shrimp and uh, just have a good good, good, good couple of hours to hang out with some of the listeners. Um, so if that's of interest to you, 318-599-9192 or shoot us a note on the website, 
Final thing, if you are a vendor, you're like Josh and myself, a contractor, you're on the other side, if you will, of the oil and gas business. You're not on a pipeline or EMP company side. We have a new show we are launching, and we're looking for guests. Um, kind of goes back to the comment a minute ago. We, cannot give out edit, we, we won't give up editorial control. We have a new show. We are recording episodes as we speak right now. It should be coming out in the next month, and it will be – It's a. I got this question, Josh. Are you going to charge me? No, we're not going to charge you. It's free. It's your chance to come on. You'll sit with me for about 30 minutes, and we'll talk about who you are, what you do, um, you know, where your position is in the industry. We're trying to create a database for people to get out to let them know who they are in the industry. And low-key, uh, just like it is on this show, very laid back. So let me know. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can reach out to Nate, and we will get you hooked up with that. We are filling up spots left and right, but we have hundreds of spots that we could fill up. So this is a show we're wanting to do a lot of episodes on, and uh, I'm looking at it. <laughs> Look at my schedule, Josh. I've got one, two, three, four, five six podcast i got four podcasts tomorrow <laughs> on this on this new one one on wednesday one on thursday so <laughs> i think i bit off more like a chew golly <laughs> but, but we are <laughs> yeah we recorded uh two last week i think and so or one last week i think and then uh yeah so six this week one next week uh two the following week and then you know there's some more out there so anyway so if that's of interest to you you again you want you know just like jt did um, and just for distinguishing, you might say, well, what's the difference between coming on Texas Oil and Gas and Oil and Gas Contractors Connect? The difference is we always ask for the Texas Oil and Gas guests to talk about the industry. We really try to get them to talk about the industry um, and try to bring you guys some value. Um, this show is really just about what you guys do. And so you can take that and use it for whatever you think is best. So, Josh, did we get everything we need to get to today? I know we covered a lot. Um, Shrimp Bowl. We're thinking about doing that. Um, fishing trip, sign up for that. Right. We got we got too many calls to action. That's the problem. Too, too many, many calls to action. Yeah. Well, we got the daily rig count, one thousand seventy four. Um, did you tell them the name of the podcast uh, that that you just started? We have not announced the name yet, but we will be announcing it okay. soon. So um, we haven't uh, we haven't publicly announced it. If you if you're a guest, you've you've seen the name, but um, we have not publicly announced the name. We are working on that and. We got some other stuff to work on too, Josh. I know we can't say. So a lot of stuff going on, guys. Um, and we hope that you guys are you know, looking forward to it. And we appreciate all the feedback we get. I talk to people on LinkedIn almost every day. So we really, really, really appreciate that. And we want to do more things to better serve our listenership. Josh, anything else, my friend? No, I, think, I believe that's it, bud. Okay. Well, listeners, thank you so much. And be sure to check out the show notes or the website, TexasOneGuestPodcast.com. Nate will link up all this stuff, all the calls to action, all the various things we have going on, which is way too much, in the show notes. So you can check out there. And until next time, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.